It is uh, so exciting to be starting a book, and such a good book as Ephesians. We will be in chapter 1. As is the custom of this church, please stand for the reading of God's inerrant and infallible word. We will be reading Ephesians 1, 1 through 12. Actually, through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved In him we have redemption through his blood for the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the will, to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Please be seated. Let's pray. Oh God, how I thank you for your word, how rich it is, how deep the mine is with immeasurable value. I will pray that you will take the feeble mining of your words that I've done and bless it to your people for your glory. I ask that you would cause your word to sink deeply into our hearts, to affect us for this week. In Christ's name and by his blood we pray, amen. Uh, We are going to hopefully see three things this evening. The first is the purpose of all things, the second is its effect, and the third is its accomplishment. Now, this text, as you heard me reading through it, is so full, and each sentence just goes on and on, and the ideas are tied within each other, so it will not neatly follow the outline which I have just given you. That is certainly my fault, but I blame some on Paul. This is a letter to the Ephesians. Well, who were the Ephesians? This was the capital of proconsular Asia. It was known for pagan worship. The Presbyterian uh, Charles Hodge in the uh, 19th century spoke of Ephesus this way, Oxford, England is not more Oxford on account of its university 
then Ephesus was Ephesus on account of the temple of Diana. So they were known for this giant, wonderful temple that all of these um, pagans would worship at. Paul served in Ephesus for at least two years. He built church there. He communed with them there. He built loving relationships there. He is writing this letter years later from a prison cell made by Romans. We are familiar with the book of Romans and how important that is for the theology of the church. Martin Luther said it was the most important document in the New Testament. Of course, we know he liked Galatians as well. John Mackay, a Scottish Presbyterian of Princeton Theological Seminary, said that this was the crown and climax. This book of Ephesians is the crown and climax of his theology. And Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way. Romans is the purest expression of the gospel, but Ephesians is the sublimest and most majestic. Adjective upon adjective, superlative upon superlative, Paul is carried up beyond himself in the contemplation of this subject. And as we read it, you notice that it just kept piling on. How many times he said, to the glory of God, to the praise of God, over and over again. He can't contain himself. So what a joy it is for us to be able to go through this book. We thank God for his word. Let's begin in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Apostle. The Greek word apostolos means messenger. A person sent by another, an envoy, someone with authority. There were, in fact, only 14 people on this planet who have been apostles. The 12 disciples, then Judas dropped out, another one came, and then Paul, who was the apostle to the Gentiles, who was bringing this mystery that we will get to later. This is a good thing for us as Americans to embrace. We are individualists. We don't typically like authority or people to tell us what to do. But in this letter, he begins, this is Paul, an apostle. He has authority. He has foundational authority. Once that building, the foundation is gone, and we'll get to that verse later in this book about the foundation that was built on the prophets and the apostles. Once that foundation was built, the office of apostles ceased at that point. We need to listen to these words. This is not suggestion. This is from the Apostle Paul. So we take this word of God and we listen and we obey. Verse 2 says, grace to you. Well, many of you love John MacArthur, as um, I do, and you are familiar with his ministry called Grace to You. This is a familiar uh, greeting to his letters. In fact, John Piper has noted that every single one of Paul's letters starts with Grace to You and then ends with some form of Grace be with you. So the beginning, Grace to you, and then when he signs off, Grace with you. And the notes that John Piper gives on that, and I certainly agree, is that this word of God is the thing that is bringing the grace. Why does he start with one phrase and end with another? Because it's grace to you. As he's writing this letter, you are about to receive the grace of the word of God. It's going to build you. It's going to encourage you. It's going to be with you. You're going to learn. And then as it ends, please keep it with you. You've just received the grace that's given. Now notice how different this is from other religions. 
there is no looking deep within you for guidance. There's no, we don't do Buddhism where we are thinking of, a, of a, the centering on ourselves. No, we are coming out of ourselves to God, the King. We know that we don't have the answer inside of us. If it was up to us, we'd be in trouble. We look to God. So it is grace to you that we are about to receive in this. Please notice in these first two verses, he's starting with God. How big of a mistake it is for man, especially us in the Western church, to start with man. We want to build our theology around ourselves. And indeed, Paul will get to man in the later chapters of this book. He will get to how to live and how to have relationships and what to do. He will get to that. But we must start with God. We must begin where Paul is beginning in these verses. This letter is from God. Remember, all things are from God and to God and with God. We are focused on God. I've already noted that um, we are so familiar with starting with ourselves in this culture. You, you've heard many of these questions. Why do bad things happen to good people? That is a man-centered question right there. We're thinking about man and defending man, whereas we could be asking, why in the world would God put up with sinners so much like us? Why? Two opposite ends of the same sort of question we'd be answering. Or when the, the non-believing world hears of God's commandments, ordering people to live a certain way, and they think, well, we don't want these other people to have to change lifestyles. We want them to be like that. Why can't you just leave them alone? That's the man-centered way of it. Let men decide what is good versus, my goodness, how could a creature made by God, given life and so many blessings, reject God and his good laws of love? Two different perspectives. We must start with God. So this is Paul, an apostle. He is writing to send grace to you. This Bible, this word of God is going to bring you grace. And who is he writing to? To whom is he writing? To the saints. Now, this is not the Roman Catholic saints who are canonized and they go through this process, this special elite. These are the saints who are believers in Christ. Saint means cleansed one, holy one, set apart one. I wonder, Christian, are you washed in the blood? Then you are set apart. You are a holy one. You are one that he is writing to in this point. Saint. That is a word that we need to recapture. We are saints. We are part of God's family. We do not follow the world. We are following Christ. Blessed be, this is verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You are blessed by God, the source in Christ, the means, in the heavenly places, the sphere. I would like you to, for a moment to think of uh, Indiana Jones and when he's raiding temples and there's these temples with all this gold or you could think of Egyptian uh, storerooms where the pharaohs have all of their treasures or you can think of the Hobbit movie where the, the hobbits go to the mine and it's just gold as far as you can see. Now I want you to think of the storeroom of God in the heavenly places. He owns, yes, it is true, the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns all the gold and all the silver. Yes, it is true. But more than a piece of metal, which we prize so much, which we kill over, which we do so many things on, he owns every spiritual blessing. 
You can think of very rich people who have all that they could ever want, materially speaking, and they are empty and eaten within. Why? They lack spiritual blessing. The Puritan uh, Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a wonderful book, and I commend it to you. It's called The Act of Divine Contentment. That's just one spiritual blessing, to be able to be content in Christ, to be full of Christ, regardless of what's going on in this world, regardless of what happens, to be so full of Christ that nothing can assail you. That is one benefit of God in his storeroom, in Christ, in the heavenly places. Obviously, we cannot list all of them, but you get the point. This storeroom is vast, and it is yours in Christ. Now, this phrase in Christ, he keeps using over and over and over again. In fact, Paul uses it 146 times in all of his letters. This is why the Reformers hated so much, and the Puritans hated so much, the um, rituals of the Roman Catholic Church. These things that men invented that obscure Christ. Where are all of these blessings? In Christ. They are not in doing X, Y, or Z. They're not going to a confessional. They're not going to a priest. They're not going to a shaman. They are in Christ. They are yours for free. And people get so wrapped up in following tradition. No Christian, no Christian. Let nothing obscure Christ. Christ is the center. Pray to no one but Christ. He is the king. Pray to Christ. It is in Christ that we are blessed with all these things. Notice it does not say it is in your 401k that you are blessed with all of these things. It is in your relationships that you have that you are blessed with all of these things. It is in Christ, nothing else. Obviously, you know, many times in life people go through hard times. And when people I love are going through hard times and they're believers, I think of this, um, this quote by Robert Murray McShane, who was a Presbyterian missionary. A long time ago, and this was his quote, and you can find it in his letters. It's a wonderful volume, The Letters of Robert Murray McShane. My chief comfort concerning you, and he's talking about someone he was writing to that was going through tribulation. He says, my chief comfort concerning you is that my God shall supply your every need according to the riches in glory by Christ Jesus. So, Where are your blessings? Not on this earth, not in getting out of trials on this earth. They're in Christ Jesus. And regardless of what people are going through, Christ Jesus is the rescue. As Pastor Wakeland mentioned this morning, God does not heal everyone of cancer on this planet. But when you are brought to glory, it is gone in an instant. You are healed in the heavenly store places of Christ. You are healed. So my chief comfort concerning you is that God shall supply your every need. What a great thing. We could just spend the whole time, the whole time this evening on verse 3, talking about the spiritual blessings. And in fact, some pastors, uh, some of these greatest people, Martin Lloyd-Jones preached on Ephesians, and he would go three words at a time, and it took just over and over. I will not do that to you. I cannot do that to you. I'm not able to do that to you. So you can go read some of his books to dig deeper into each of these. All right, verse 4 and 5. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And I'm going to also add in verse 11 because these are in the same doctrine. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We are about to speak of a doctrine that causes distress to so many. This is seen as oppressive and odious to people. They think it is so hateful of a concept. We are going to get into it, but I just want you to note what is the response, what is the result of these verses, of this doctrine to Paul? Does he shy from it and say, oh, this is so harsh and this is so... No. He proclaims it and then he exalts God in it. He gives joy and praise and honor and glory to God. What is the result of this doctrine? It is not to shrink back from its fear. It is to worship God. If what you get from this doctrine is something hideous and heinous, you're doing it wrong. You must see these verses and this doctrine for its glory. Would you mind opening that door? She got locked out. Thank you. We rescue her. Don't let her go in the mud. Okay, good. Glad we got her. All right, so uh, how is it that we are to take what we're supposed to take from these verses and not end up on the wrong side where we're not supposed to be hating this? Well, there are two aspects to this. There's the mind and then there's the heart. So in one aspect, it would be something for you to understand this doctrine. But we don't want you just to understand the doctrine. We want you, as Paul, to feel the doctrine to express joy because of the doctrine. That, by the way, mind and heart is the uh, motto or the slogan of my seminary, Reformed Theological Seminary, mind for uh, truth and heart for God. So I like that, mind and heart. My favorite analogy on this topic, why would we even, why is Paul going into this heavy topic? Why is it important for us to? My favorite analogy by uh, John Piper is where he's talking about a ship out in the ocean. And there are giant swells and waves and winds and hurricane forces. And this giant ship is just being tossed to and fro. And what is so important for this ship to have is ballast, weight, deep within it, so that it is not tossed and capsized and turned over. It must have something substantial to hold it. And John Piper describes this doctrine as that weight inside of us. We need this heavy doctrine. We need this. Our lives are full of heavy winds and strong gales. And so we need something strong. We need a strong God and we need this doctrine. Now notice this is a heavy weight that is not like uh, pilgrims in Pilgrim's Progress. This is not like the heavy weight on his back that he needs to get rid of at the cross. That is a burden of his sin. This is a weight that is like steel in your spine that gives you the ability to stand strong. It is not weighing you down as in oppressively hurting your back. Some are repulsed by this notion of predestination. And I will submit to you it is because of misconceptions of the doctrine of predestination. Some people only know grotesque caricatures of this doctrine. One, 
God has created us robots. That's what you're telling me. We're just doing whatever he says. We have no choice. We just cannot. We're just robots mechanically acting out what God has said. That is a character. That is not what scripture says. That is not what we believe. Two, another grotesque character. He is a malevolent God who joys in sending people to perdition. He relishes it. Oh, that is so heinous. We do not believe that. Scriptures do not teach that. We, of course, reject that sort of theology as much as anyone. Well, if it's not those two characters, what is it? What is this predestination and providence that we're speaking of? By the way, the word predestination is a theological term that deals specifically with the salvation of souls. And providence is a more broad term that deals with his governing of all things. So verse 11, you'd see a picture of providence. And verses uh, 5 and 6, you see a picture of predestination. But that's just an aside. So how is it we are to understand this? Is God a malevolent God who gleefully sends people to hell? No. Scripture says very clearly, God desires that all men would be saved. If any go to hell, it is God sending them begrudgingly for the just deserts of their sins. He doesn't want them to go to hell. Now, what do I mean want and will? Well, we have to dig into this for one moment. What is it about wills that is so hard to understand? Well, there are two wills in each of you. You can understand this analogy. You are walking down the street. A robber comes up and he holds a gun in your face, says, give me your wallet or I will kill you. Do you want to give him your wallet? Well, no, you don't want to give him your wallet. Will you give him your wallet? Yes, you will give him your wallet. But you said you didn't want to. Well, you have two wills. You, what you want and what you want. What you will and what you will. So you can understand this. Does God want to send them to hell? No, repent and believe. Please repent and believe. If you reject, will he send you to hell? Yes. Begrudgingly, he doesn't want to. Is God giving, I mean, has God made us robots in this case? Of course not. Scripture also speaks that men have choices. Men make choices. Joshua 24, 15, choose this day whom you will serve. Choose. Wait a second. I thought you just said God was predestining and choosing who's coming. If he's choosing, how can man choose? Well, what do you do, Christian, when the Bible tells you something? You believe it. You believe it. If, uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 3, section 1 on God's eternal decree is very helpful to help us spell this difficult doctrine out. I quote, God from all eternity did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet, so as thereby neither is God the author of sin... Nor is violence offered to the will of the creature. Man does not end up taking away the free will. How does this work? Well, let's look at some examples here. Genesis 50, 20. This is at the end of Joseph's life when his brothers have come and they're afraid that he's going to kill them. As, he'd, you know, as most people would want revenge on somebody that had sold you into slavery. As for you... This is Joseph. As for you, you meant evil against me, 
but God meant it for good. Some translations horribly butcher this by saying you meant it for evil, but God turned it for good. They use different words. It's the same word in Hebrew. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Both of them at the same time. How is that possible? You willing, man willing, and God willing, same time. Or how about Pharaoh, Exodus 8.32. Pharaoh hardened his heart. That's what it says. Pharaoh hardened it. Well, turn the page. Exodus 9.12. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh's heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. How are both of those things possible? Believe, believe, Christian, believe. Both of those are true. We hold this. See, it is not uh, a believing in the sovereignty of God. It's not a subtraction of anything. We believe both of those things. Romans 9.20 gives us an answer to this questioning, this wondering. How is this possible? Who is willing? What is going on? Here's the answer Paul gives. But who are you O oh man, to answer back to God. Will what is molded say to the molder, what, why have you made me like this? You are to stand in awe and majesty of this God and worship. You will not understand this doctrine perfectly. You won't. But it leads to worship like Paul is showing us here. And furthermore, how can we know that this is not a grotesque God doing malevolent things? Look at what it says Right before it says, he predestined us. What does it say? In love. This is Christ loving. Notice, Christian, that this is not. The character as well that people have is, this predestination is keeping people out of heaven. I am going to stop people from coming into heaven that want to go to heaven. No. In love, he is getting people, saving them, and bringing them to heaven. We are dead in sin. Ephesians chapter 2. Can't wait till we get there. Ephesians chapter 2. We are dead in sin. All of us would be on our way to perdition. All of us choose by those wills that we still have. We choose what is wrong. We choose that. And if God were to say, you don't like it when I predestine, fine. I will not predestine. And then what? No one comes to Christ if he does not waken your heart and give you a heart of flesh to live and respond, then no one would come. The response is often, that's not fair. You don't want what is fair, Christian. You want Christ. You want him to reach in and save you. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As high as the heavens are over the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. Would you think that you would be able to understand everything that God has done I can't even understand how he answers prayers all at once. At the same time, we prayed. We've, how many church services were there on this planet at one time? Everyone praying at the same time. I can't hear two people talk to me at the same time. How, does, how is that possible? And how does he answer prayers where he's omnipotent and he knows the right thing to do? In every, how? You can't understand, Christian, but you can worship this God who is doing this in love. 
This is the God. Notice how good and comforting this notion is. This God, who is so loving, who loves you to the nth degree, is ordaining all things that come to pass. All things, everything that comes to pass. This is how you can have faith such as Stonewall Jackson, who would say, I feel as safe in battle as I do in bed. God has appointed the time of my death. This is the comfort and the joy and the peace that we get from this doctrine. It is not a heinous doctrine. It is not one of a malevolent God. It is one of a loving God who is saving dying and lost people. In verse 11, we see four words, predestined, purpose, counsel, will. Well, what in the world? What are the differences? What are the distinctions between this? I'm relying here on Stephen Lawson, who gives a good explanation. He says we must break them down chronologically. When do they happen in this sequence? Counsel. In eternity past, before time began, there was a divine deliberation amongst and within the Godhead. Will. The decision or the decree or choice for everything that comes to pass. Purpose. The divine resolve to accomplish his will. And then finally, predestined. This guarantees the reality of it. This pours concrete, he says, into the plans. This settles them. And oh, Christian, how you want it to be settled. If you are in the hand of Christ, do you want to be able to fall out of it? No. You need this predestining so that you will not fall At the appointed time, every one of God's elect will be saved. Every one. Now, the the confession was clear. This does not do away with means. So we don't have to pray for them. We don't have to evangelize to them. We don't have to. No, your going and your speaking and your praying is just as predestined as the end result. The means and the ends. Go, Christian. Pray for people. Share with people about Christ. We have the same heart. As our Father in heaven who desires that none would be lost. We have that heart for other people as well. We're coming close to the end. Let's turn to verse 6. I promised you the purpose of all things and we haven't even seen it. Verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So what is the point of all of this predestining? And action and willing and sovereignly decreeing. What is the point of all of this? To the praise of his glorious grace. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones takes great umbrage with that phrase as it's translated, his glorious grace. In the older translations, it is to the praise of the glory of his grace. And in this, the ESV has turned it somewhat into just a pointer word. That grace is glorious. Martin Lloyd-Jones makes the point very carefully that glory is a thing. It is the weight of God. It is his worth and goodness. So it's to the praise of God's goodness. And which aspect of God's goodness? Of his weight, of his goodness? Well, it doesn't say in this verse that he did all of this for his justice. It doesn't say that he did all of this for his holiness or his wisdom in picking the good ones. We know, in fact, when we get to chapter 2, we'll see he did it without any of man's actions. He didn't look forward and see which ones were the good ones. Because guess how many good ones there are? None. So he did not do it based on any of these things. His shrewdness in picking the right one. What does it say? The glory of his 
grace of his bountiful fountain of everlasting goodness that he just lavishes on us to the praise of that. Some people recoil at this notion as well that God is so, what would the word be, selfish to be seeking his own glory? The reason, and that, that for someone who is just stumbling upon this, the reason that would logically seem like that's a problem is because people who do that are terrible. If you know someone who is constantly after his own glory and his own goodness and seeking acclaim and exaltation, what a terrible person that is to be around. Why is it good for God to do it and not man? It is wrong for man to do it because no man is good like that. No one deserves to be glorified and exalted. Why is it good for God to do this? It is right that he gets that. He is the only one that deserves it. And bear this in mind, Christian. When he is protecting and getting and praising and getting glory for what is good that he's done, that is the best thing for us. It's a win-win. He's getting this glory. And guess what the best thing for us is? To experience that goodness, his perfection, his excellence, and then to express it. You've heard this analogy. When your favorite sports team wins or you see a good movie, you just have to tell someone. And it increases the enjoyment of the experience. God is so good and we want to praise him. It is so worth it to praise him. It brings us joy and peace to praise him. Oh, what heaven will be like to get to that infinite storehouse we talked about before and then to share with each other. Did you see this? Did you see this? How good this is. Never ending, ever increasing joy. My God, it is so unfathomable. This letter is so rich. There are two types of glory. There's the glory that is intrinsic to God. We cannot take that. We cannot add to it. That is who he is. It's his weightiness. And then there is ascribed glory. That is what we say about him. We praise him. We give him honor and glory. We're not talking about his intrinsic glory. We're talking about the praise that we give him. And in that verse, there's both. It's to the praise, ascribed glory, to the praise of the glory of his grace. I told you at the beginning I was going to have hopefully get you to see three things. One was the purpose of all things. All of you good Presbyterians already knew the answer to that. You said the Westminster Confession tells me in the shorter catechism, question one, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God. So you didn't even need to be here, my goodness. So that is the verse right there. The purpose of all things to the praise of the glory of his grace, to bring God glory. How is it accomplished? That was the second thing we were to learn. Is it up to you? Is it up to your striving and doing and earning and working? Oh, thank God that your salvation is not. That his glory is not in the hands of men who would fall and have done so since Adam and Eve walked millennia ago. It is in the solid hands of God, predestined from all eternity, that glory would be had. What is the purpose of God's glory? How is it accomplished by his strong hand? And what is its effect? Everlasting joy. Joy in your heart, joy in my heart, joy to the end of time. Joy despite tragedy and sorrow and hurt and pain. Joy because we have it in Christ, in his storerooms, in the heavenly places. 
Oh, blessed one, if you have not put your faith in him, if you have not come to him, then come now and make that predestining love be on you. Come, Christian. Come, sinner. Repent and become a Christian. Christ's one. This is a heavy topic. There's no doubt about it. There are terribly horrible things that happen in this planet. Terrible they make you wreck, and, and there's no doubt that it, it gives anxious anxiety in our minds to think of these things. We could come up with some explanations about it. We could say, well, if God doesn't want robots and people have to be able to choose in order to have will and not be a robot, then they're going to choose evil and sin. Well, why didn't he not allow them to choose that? Well, what do you call something that can't choose? A robot? Okay. So we could go through all of these explanations and say, well, why is there tragedy? Why does he bring hurricanes? Well, what if... If this planet had no suffering and everyone was on their way to hell, no one would be woken up. What if this is the maximal number of people that will come to faith in him as a world that has pain and suffering so that we will wake up and come to Christ? What if all of, we could give all of these explanations? That's not the explanation Paul gives. He says, who are you, O oh man? See this God of love, worship him, rest in him, feel this doctrine securing yourself. In the words of the great hymn, Whate'er my God ordains, we will sing it in a moment. Whate'er my God ordains is right, here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there, he holds me that I shall not fall, and so to him I leave it all. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we revel in the grandeur of who you are. Of your boundless grace that you've expressed. Oh, Father, drive these scriptures deep into our hearts. Cause us to live in such a way that you get maximum glory. Cause us to live in such a way that we show how valuable you are by how we live. We desire that you would get great glory for yourself through your son in our lives every moment. In Christ's name, for your glory we pray. Amen.